See, we can't get this thing all hooked up and ready for takeoff. All right, let's see here. I know I'm supposed to always wait till I get up here to do this. All right, there it is. I see it. And we'll see in a moment if you see it. All right, there we go. Whoa, that's small. Okay. All right, well, when I made this, I made it in what's called 4-3, or whatever you call that, instead of 16 by 9. So it's going to be a little smaller, but the darkness of it is pretty dark there, but we'll get to some other slides. You'll be able to see it. I want to start in the Word of God, Psalm 119. Let's turn to Psalm 119. And again, we're going to look at that to start with, and we'll see where that goes. Uh, we've got, uh, I want to look at verse, um, I'll tell you what, let's start with verse 89. We'll look at verse 89. And just going to look at a couple verses, and then we'll kick this off. But again, I think it's important that we understand. I mean, we, we come to a church, and you say, well, what Bible do you use? We use a King James Bible. You say, well, why? And we say, well, that's because that's what we use. Well, there's a reason for it, it's, and, and I think it's important to understand what the reason is. I think everything ought to have a reason. I think that uh, everything with a purpose is an important uh, theme or in my life, and I want everything done with a purpose, and I think it's true in the church. I think it's true in our daily Christian lives. If you're doing something in your Christian life, you ought to have a purpose for it. There ought to be a reason for it, and, uh, and hopefully it's a scriptural reason. But notice what the Bible says here in Psalm chapter 119, verse 89. It says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Now, as we're going to look at uh, this particular topic, uh, I, I want to make it pretty clear that uh, from what I can understand in the scriptures, the Word of God didn't just show up on earth. It was already in heaven. And so the Bible says, Forever, O Lord, thy word was settled in heaven. So the implication is, and the idea, according to the passage, is that the Bible's already been around, okay? 
So it's, it's in heaven. So can I tell you what we, we you know, we, we like to, what we're going to find is that there's a big debate on as to whether or not, you know, we have, uh, it, it, whether the King James Bible is really the word of God, because, you know, in the originals, we all believe it was perfect and without error. But of course, mankind has really corrupted the scriptures through the years. And God's done a pretty good job of keeping it straight, but still man has really messed it up. And so we're not really convinced there's any Bible that's 100%, or at least that's what you'll hear from a number of other scholars and, and those that claim to be Bible scholars even, that every Bible has error in it. Well, here's my point. First of all, the originals were just copies. They were copies from heaven. And can I tell you that ever since we've been just copying copies? So the originals were really a copy. That which was done on Mount Sinai was already in heaven. Okay, and so I, I, I don't know that, that I run into a real problem with the problem, well, that's copies, and copies can't be trusted, only the originals. Well, the originals were copies, so in my mind, it's kind of tough for me. I mean, I, I, I just have a hard time with that thought process. Now, again, we're going to note a couple of things about those copies, if you will, that give us some pretty good confidence that they're pretty solid. Now, I do want you to note over there in verse 169 as well, and I think it's important to note this, or verse one. Yeah, verse 165, excuse me, 165. I want you to notice what the result of the word of God is in our life. He says, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Notice what he says here. Great peace have they which love thy law. Man, if you love this book and you love the word of God, you're going to have peace in your life. Now listen, I tell you, it's important that we understand this, okay? <clears throat> so we, we need to know what the Bible is then. I mean, what, I, well, there's so many different Bibles on the market today, right? I mean, there's so many different ones. There's a statement that came out years ago, it's probably 20, 25 years ago, said things that are different are not the same. And you know, that is, there's, that's true. Things that are different are not the same. And so the question is, is, is every Bible God's word? Is it equally God's Bible? Is one more God's Bible than the next? Uh, is it that, that there's either just one Bible that's really the Bible? Is there a bunch of Bibles that are Bibles? Is one 90% accurate, the other 98% accurate, the other 99.7% accurate, one 50% accurate. I mean, there's so many things that come into play when you get into this topic and this issue. And I'm just going to be frank and right up front. I believe that in the King James Bible, we talk about it for English-speaking people. This is the word of God for English-speaking people. I tell you what, you go down to Mexico and you got to get one in Spanish. You know what? I don't know that I'm really qualified to tell you exactly what Bible to use in Spanish. Man, those all those Reina Valeras are all over the place. But can I tell you this? I know what book we got in the United States. I know what book we got in English. And it's been around for over 400 years. And I believe it is without error. And I can trust it completely. That's what I believe. In the King James, though. In the King Not the New King James. In the King James. Okay, now, you say, well, why then? Why do you believe that? Well, let me just give you a couple of thoughts tonight as we go forward here. We'll just think about a few things. Okay, why do we use the King James Bible? Why do you believe it's the Word of God? Why do we stand there so firmly on it? Well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll continue on. Father, we come to you. We do thank you for all you do for us. Again, Lord, um, we thank you for just uh, your Word. We thank you, Father, for the confidence that we can have in it, and 
We do ask, Lord, you just help us. There may be some that are still asking that question. Well, which Bible should I use? And which one is really God's Word? If, or are they all God's Word? And Lord, I hope this will be a help and an encouragement. And Lord, I just pray that, Father, you would just once again uh, uh, just reinforce what we already know to be true. But Lord, may we not question or doubt you or your Word. And as we go forward, help us to understand, Lord, that the Word of God is everything to a believer. It's, it's the foundation for our faith and practice. And we need to really be careful and, and, and confident in the Word of God. So, Lord, help us, Lord, even today, and we'll thank you, Father, as you give us insight into your Word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so <clears throat> as we go forward, we're going to notice a couple of things. First of all, the inspiration and preservation of Scripture. This is a big reason why we believe the Bible is the Word of God, okay? First of all, we talk about inspiration. Over in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good, unto all good works. Okay, we noted this element of, 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 in, of inspiration. We say that the Bible's been inspired by God. It's an inspired book. It's God's Word. What that word inspired means is God-breathed. And so we believe, and most people would agree, that in the originals it was God-breathed. It was literally God's Word. It was without a doubt perfect in the originals because they were inspired or God-breathed. The author was God. Simply used, he simply used writers to pen it. And I've often used that illustration before, but it'd be like the writers were literally this pen. Although they were the ones that put it on paper, it was God who was directing those authors. Literally, they were pens in his hand. I do believe, I'm, 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 I'm confident that some of those writers did not even, nor they were not even really aware of everything they were writing. They didn't understand everything they were writing, but they were inspired by God, and they were often even directed by God, and I don't even know that they always knew exactly what they were writing. But God was the author. They weren't ever really the author. Now we see personalities of these writers coming through, and praise the Lord, God uses people to accomplish his will and purpose for life. But the fact is, is that they were literally just pens in his hand. They were instruments in the hand of God. We see inspiration. God breathed. So when we look at the Word of God, the Bible, we say, this is God's Word. It was God breathed. It was his book, his Word. And that's important. But then there's this word of preservation, because we know that the originals are gone. We understand that nobody has the originals. Nobody's going to go to the Ark of the Covenant and find a piece of rock with the handwriting of God on it. We also know that those original parchments in which the apostles wrote and sent to the different churches have long since decayed and turned into ash. And someone says, well, we found some in the yeah, and you know what they found? Copies. They've always found copies. Some of them, well, some of them are right back to the apostles. Oh, I know. Isn't that amazing? Hold on. They're copies, though. How in the world do we today stand in a pulpit or out on the streets or wherever we are with a Bible in our hand and say with confidence, this book is God's word? Because we believe in a word called preservation that's taught in Scripture. That God preserved His Word. Over in the book of Psalm, chapter 12, verse 6 through 7, the Bible says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. 
Now again, preservation is something to keep or defend from corruption or evil. That's exactly what God did with his word. God ensured that it was kept clean, that it was not corrupted, that it was defended from that corruption and defended from evil. We read in the book of Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Again, that's why we can recognize it to be pure, because again, it's been preserved. And notice it's been preserved from this generation forever. We know that back there in the book of Psalms, it's way back there. It was before the New Testament was even written. What we can say is is that both the Old and the New Testament have been preserved. And he's saying, listen, I'm going to tell you right now, he shall preserve them from this generation forever. Everything that's been written, everything that will be written, will not only be inspired or God-breathed, but it will be preserved by God. And may I say that it's not mankind that is responsible to preserve his word based on the word of God. It's God who is responsible to preserve his word. So God tells us that despite the fact that there are no originals, he's continued to protect the purity of his words by a process he describes as preservation. Now, a number of people are going to argue that God indeed gave mankind his word without error. However, once man got their hands on it, once men got their hands on that book, the word of God, it was tainted down through the years. And can I tell you that makes perfect sense to me? In my humanness, I have to admit, anything that mankind gets a hold of, he corrupts. Why? Because he is ruled by flesh. And you know what? We are just mere humans. And can I tell you, as mere humans, we make a lot of mistakes. So you know what? If God entrusted the care of his word into the hands of humanity, then listen, I tell you right now, I don't know how far I could trust this book. I don't know if I could trust it to even be a good paperweight. But it's not mankind that was responsible in the first place. Preservation is a doctrine that says God, not man, is responsible for the purity of the word of God through history. For that we are eternally grateful. Because if I'm not not wrong, and I think I'm I'm right on this one, you and I are going to stand before God. And when those books are open, there's a book that's going to be open. And can I tell you, we're going to be judged out of it. The standard by which we are to be judged has already been given to us. God does not bring us to the judgment and say, now, let me tell you what I was judging you on. He doesn't do that. He gives us insight and understanding as to what we will be judged by. And that standard is before us today in the King James Bible for you and I today. And someone says, well, again, you don't have to agree with that. I understand it. We are all human beings. You make your own decisions. But what I'm seeing is that God did indeed preserve his word, and I believe that biblically we can see it, uh, see evidence of it in scripture. To say that the Bible has error, and from what I can tell, is to basically say that God's a liar then. Because he's the one that promised. He didn't just say he might. He didn't say, well, I'll consider. He said, I will preserve this book from this generation forever. I'm going to do that. And if he didn't do that, then he's the liar. And can I tell you, just even saying that makes me a little nervous. But the fact is is that God cannot tell a lie. Therefore, I know for a fact that this book has been preserved. Now, the question is, which book? (laughs) Really, isn't that the issue? I don't believe there can be ten different Bibles because things that are different are not the same. 
I don't believe that God could say, well, you'll be judged out of this book because that's the one you read. And you'll be judged out of this book because that's the one you read. And you'll be judged out of this book because that's the one that you had back in the 8th century. And this is the book you had in the 12th century. And you had a corrupted manuscript during the Dark Ages, so I'll, I'll judge you out of a corrupted manuscript. I don't believe that's how it works. I believe God said, my word is here. You better find it and you better use it because you'll be judged out of it. God's people have always had a responsibility to, to protect the word of God in that regard. And we see men and women who gave their lives throughout history in order to preserve a book, to keep it intact. And although God didn't say without them he couldn't have done it because he did it anyway, and he could do it with or without us, even as, we, even as he will receive praise, if it ain't by man, it'll be from the rocks. He can keep the word. See, what God has promised to preserve, perfect, uh, perfect and without error will undoubtedly remain pure, and we have his word on it. Now we come to this element of manuscript lines. So we've talked a little bit about inspiration, preservation, and why in the world we can trust that there's got to be a book that is God's word then. Because God promised to preserve his word through history. So somewhere in, a, in, the, United, or somewhere in the world, there's a book that is God's word. Where is it then? Well, I believe manuscript lines help us a little bit, and we're going to take a look at this for just a moment. I know this is extremely small. I'll, I'll uh, decipher the small print for you. But what we're going to see here are that there's two lines of manuscripts, basically. Now, again, if you look at any book, you read any book about manuscript evidence, you're going to find that basically there are simply just two lines. Every once in a while, somebody wants to try to curve a third one in there, but the fact is, is that it's not that big a deal. It doesn't really have any playtime. It's certainly two manuscript lines. Most will not disagree with that. 99% of people would never disagree with that, even Bible scholars. Two basic lines that address and deal with this issue of the Bible. Now, <clears throat> you have two lines, and one is originated out of a place called Antioch, Antioch of Syria. Now, when we think of Antioch of Syria, we can't think about chapter 11 over the book of, of Acts when we see uh, Paul the Apostle there in Antioch. We know that there in Syria and in that, that church there in Antioch, they were first called Christians. We know and recognize that these things were taking place and that, that the word of God was being uh, inserted into, uh, into the world here through these apostles. And, these, the, and, and they were literally writing scriptures and God was confirming those scriptures. And by the end of basically the first century, the Bible was virtually complete. It was canonized no later than 200. But we see it coming together in its form as we understand it today. Antioch, the, the scriptures by Paul the Apostle and, and, as being made, it, making its way through Europe now, through Europe. But also, these scriptures also ended up down in Alexandria, Egypt. They ended down in, in Alexandria, Egypt. Remember that Philip, he's in a great revival there in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, but then all of a sudden he's whisked away into the wilderness and there in the desert, I should say, he comes across an Ethiopian eunuch. Man, that, that fellow here, he's, he's from down, down in Africa way, and he is, he's got some scriptures now. 
And he doesn't understand what he's reading. And Philip says, hey, uh, would you like me to share? Oh, yeah, except some man show me. How can I? I'll never know. I'll never understand. He jumps up in there and he talks to him, shares with him how it's from Isaiah 53 and how it's referring to Jesus Christ. And he ultimately stops and he ends up, he said, you know, well, you, you, know, you want to be baptized? Uh, I, I can baptize you, but what do you believe? Well, I believe in Jesus Christ. You know, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, absolutely. He is, he is who he claimed to be. Yep, for sure. So he trusts Christ, he gets baptized, guess where he ends up? He goes down into Africa, which he goes through Egypt, and we believe that even for this Ethiopian eunuch, that the scriptures arrived in Egypt, and then went on down into Africa. Now we also know that not only did he, but probably we see from church history that Barnabas and John ended up in Africa and in Egypt as well. They went down that direction. Now, again, we have the scriptures now that made their way there. We have them in Antioch of Syria. We also now have them in Alexandria, Egypt. Now, I don't know about you, but Egypt also has somewhat of a reputation. Even as Antioch has a reputation, Egypt has a reputation, and Egypt has a reputation for being a type of the world. Now, I think that's important to note when we consider that when it's all said and done, that the scriptures that we now hold in our hands in America in 2021 are either from Antioch, Syria, or they are scriptures that were born out of and brought forth from Alexandria, Egypt. One of the two lines. Now, <clears throat> we know that in Alexandria, Egypt, we had a school down there. And in that school in Alexandria... There were certain men. We think about men like Origen. Origen ultimately would have about eight or nine different uh, translations of the scriptures. He did a good job of, of being, a very, being very critical about scripture. Matter of fact, down there in that, I want to read you something from Britannica. I'm talking about, you know what I mean, back in the day we used to use what was called uh, encyclopedias. You still use them, you don't know it, you just call it the internet now. But listen to what Britannica Encyclopedia had to say. I was just looking this up just by curiosity today because I wanted to see what they said about the school of Alexandria. Listen to what they said about the school at Alexandria in Egypt. School of Alexandria, the first Christian institution of higher learning founded in the mid-2nd century A.D. in Alexandria, Egypt. Under its earliest known leaders, Pantaneus, Clement, and Origen, it became a leading center of the allegorical method of biblical interpretation, espoused a, a big long word that means harmony, repro reproachment, or re yeah, reproachment or reproachment. It means harmony. So it espoused a harmony between Greek culture and Christian faith and attempted to assert Orthodox Christian teachings against. Heterodox views in an era of doctrinal flux. Now, let me just read that again because I'm struggling with some of the words because it's big time. These are smart people. Under its earliest known leaders, those three men, it became a leading center of the allegorical method of biblical interpretation. It espoused a harmony between Greek culture and Christian faith. I don't know about you, but I'm getting a little nervous now <clears throat> about this, this school. And he goes on to talk about how these, uh, it, it asserted that uh, orthodox Christian teachings against heterodox views in an era of doctrinal flux. Watch this. It goes on to say, opposing the school of Alexandria, as Alexandria was the school of Antioch. What? It opposed it? 
emphasized, now watch this, which emphasized the literal interpretation of the Bible. So even Britannica Encyclopedia recognizes the distinction and difference between the school down in Alexandria, Egypt, and what they were producing down there and what they were trying to accomplish down there versus the one in Antioch of Syria. They say that the one in Antioch of Syria was interpreting Scripture literally. Well, how should you interpret Scripture? Literally. They were doing it in Alexandria allegorically. They could make it say or mean whatever they chose it to mean. And that's exactly what Clement did. That's exactly what Origen did. And that's why they were so critical of the Scriptures. We see the same kind of criticism towards Scripture in the 18 and 1700s, even in Germany, when we saw that enlightenment. It all is the same. It turns out to be the same. Mankind deciding what God means and what God says doesn't work well. So nonetheless, about 300 and what, 12 or 13 A.D., a fellow by the name of Constantine shows up on the scene. Constantine, he's the, a Roman emperor. He would become the first Roman emperor ever to, to be a Christian, to espouse Christianity as his faith. Let me just say this. It probably wasn't the same kind of Christianity that you're practicing and I'm practicing. Because how he exhibited, uh, exhibited his uh, Christianity was a little bit unique. Now understand that, that he was headed toward, I think it was the bridge of Melvin, 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 I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it wrong. Uh, but anyway, he was going to a particular war, okay? And he and his men saw something that was amazing. Now you got to understand, Constantine before this, he thought the sun god was so unbelievable. Well, then he sees a cross above the sun, and he and his men apparently seen this cross, and it said, by this, conquer. And, and man, Constantine was like, Wow, wow, that cross is definitely talking about Christianity, so I've got to conquer in the name of Christianity. And so he decided to become a Christian. But he wasn't a Christian like you and me, as I said. He would take his armies along, and he would defeat a nation, and then he would say, okay, we're going to all become Christians, right? I don't want to be a Christian. Well, you can either become a Christian or die. Okay, I'm in. Well, we know that's not true Christianity, right? Matter of fact, he didn't get baptized till the very end of his life. Why? Because he was afraid that if he got baptized before, he'd go to hell. If he did anything after he got baptized, any sin. Constantine was an interesting character. I can't judge Constantine. I wasn't there that day. But I can tell you, he had an unusual kind of faith. It wasn't quite probably like you and I have. So he was still considered the first Roman emperor to become a Christian. So what does he do? He needs some scriptures, right? So he sends down to the school in Alexandria and says, I want to get some 50 copies of the Word of God. Give me the best copies you got. Now, when people say things like, well, there are certain copies of the scriptures that have been preserved for years, and we have them, and the oldest copies are these ones, the Alexandrian ones. First of all, they were probably written on the best parchment. They were probably never used, hardly. They were probably set in some sacred place in the kingdom, never to be turned, never to be looked at, never to even be studied. No wonder they were preserved. No wonder they lasted through the years, because nobody read them. 
Constantine has 50 copies now. Constantine ultimately would create what was called a church state. He'd bring the state and the church together. That's something in America we tried to change with our Constitution, that the government had no place in our faith. Not that faith has no place in our country, but that the government has no place in our faith. We can exercise our faith according to conscience, and we shouldn't have to fear that. So he begins this church state. While another man by the name of Augustine after him, so I'm going to take it 325 A.D., we've got Constantine, and here he is now with these 50 copies, and he's propagating and promoting Christianity in his own kind of strange way. He's incorporating the pagans and he kind of mixing them into the church, and as a result, we have this convoluted, very corrupted church now. It really wasn't even a church at one point until Augustine stepped up to the plate and he kind of was the brains of the whole thing. He started really organizing things in a very concise and very careful manner. And before it was over with, by the time Augustine passes off the scene in 430 AD, we have the Catholic Church. And guess what scriptures they're using? the Alexandrian text. So in 500 AD, when the Catholic Church really gets to rolling, they decide that nobody is capable or qualified to understand Scripture except them. And along the way, they've already been already calling people heretics and already the government, both pagan government and also the Jews, and now even uh, this whole ordeal here, this whole thing going on, I mean, they're killing people that literally believe. They're, 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 they're martyring people who will not join up with them and be part of their church state, part of their group, if you will. It's a mess. So what begins? Well, because there's no real word of God now, because the Catholic Church has removed the Bible out of the hands of the common person because now only those that have been trained as priests can really understand Scripture and interpret it. We have the dark ages. You say, now nah, there's a lot more to it. Oh, there's more to it, all right. But I promise you this. Look what's happening to America economically, socially, and every other aspect because we're removing the word of God. It's going to destroy our country within. Nobody needs to come and stand on our ground and take us by force. We're going to give it all up. When you remove the word of God, you're removing light. And when you remove the light, you got problems. And so as a result, we have the Dark Ages. And can I tell you that for about 1,000 years, this continued until about 1500 A.D. And then in 1500 A.D., a man shows up, an interesting man by the name of Luther, Martin Luther. And we see basically this whole, mel uh, this whole uh, reformation kind of kicking off. And again, he's kind of a figurehead of it, but even a few years before that, we have other people that have stepped up to the plate and started introducing the scriptures to, to common people, and as a result now, ultimately, Luther has a New Testament that he puts out, and can I tell you that the foundation of his New Testament was the received text, the same text that the King James Bible's out of. It's translated from an Antioch Syrian text. Then in about 1881, I have 1884 up there, but in 1881 they published the Westcott and Hort 
Bible. Now again, it's become, it's an amazing thing. Originally, when the Westcott and Horton 1881 was, uh, was, was published, people rejected it. I mean, it's, it's blasphemy. We have a Bible. We don't need that Bible. That, that, what is that? That's the, 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 the culmination of education, and we know that pff, that's certainly not of the Lord, and blah, 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 blah. But let me tell you, if, by the time 1950 rolled around, even fundamentalist Baptists, fundamental Baptists started going, you know, we got to fit in with all of these, these educated people. we got to make them believe that we're not dunk-offs. we got to make them believe that we got some kind of brains. That was German, by the way. I'm sorry I went back to my army days. So anyway, uh, we got to make sure they know that we're not just, you know, simple-minded people. And anybody knows from the scholarship <clears throat> that there has to be, first of all, that we got to try to, and here's what was happening, really, we're, we're trying to harmonize creation and Darwinism. And now we have this battle to fight, too? And we're going to look stupid because we're saying that science isn't always right and that, that research isn't always right and, and we got to fit in. And, and I'm telling you what, men like Jack Hiles and men like uh, 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 John Rice and men like even Curtis Hudson started quoting other scriptures because they wanted to appear to be smart and to fit in with educated people. They didn't want to be isolated and separated and they somehow bought into it. But hold on it didn't stay that way. Because they realized, they started actually seeing where this would lead and what was really going on, and they recognized something. Those Bibles aren't really all they're cracked up to be, and furthermore, it's creating more confusion than it is clarity. And can I tell you, God is not the author of confusion. And so there, you can go back, and you can listen to Curtis say, over here in another version, we got this chapter too. And then you think, what is Curtis doing? Curtis was deceived for a while. And then he figured it out. And you didn't hear him use it anymore. He learned a valuable lesson. That there is a Bible you can trust. And he realized it was the King James. Westcott and Hort produced their Bible. And it was called an eclectic gospel or an eclectic Bible. What that meant is that they, they didn't have anything completed what they did have is a bunch of pieces and parts. And so they took all those pieces and parts and they decided which ones were authentic and which ones were closest to the originals and which ones were authoritative. And they said, you know what, we're going to use this one and this one and this one and this one and this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, put them all together. What do you got? Westcott and Hort text. Now, I think it's kind of interesting. I don't know about you, but I, I'd prefer to have God's text. But instead, we got the names of two men on it. And it legitimately is their text. But here's the sad part. What we're going to realize and what we understand is this. Is that when you take every single Bible but the King James, they come from an Alexandrian text. Nothing more than a Westcott and Hort text. So, there are so many Bibles and different versions available. Which one should you use? It can be confusing, isn't it? Wow! I go to the bookstore, and there's all these nice-looking Bibles, and they're so cool, and they're, they're awesome, and they got great covers on them. And then there's this little section in the corner that says King James. Wow. 
You walk over and you see these Bible. Like, hey, you got this one in the King James? No. You got this one in the King? No. How about this one? This is a cool. No. How about no? Okay. How, uh. you, you've been there, right? Every version stands on one side of the pendulum, so to speak, or on the one side, and the King James stands alone. So the, the question isn't as hard as you'd think. You'd think, okay, which Bible? I mean, come on. It's simpler than you may imagine. It's either an Alexandrian Bible or an Antioch Bible. And there's only one, King James. You said, wait, earlier you said you wouldn't use a new King James. That's right, because you know what they did? They inserted a little bit of Alexandrian text in it. I don't want any of it. Man, old, I'm telling you, old Eusebius and Clement and, 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 and Origen back there, man, they messed that thing all up. I don't want nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. So basically, this is the decision. So let's talk a little bit about some of the specifics. First of all, omitted in many of the versions, first the NIV, the NASV, the New American Standard Version, the, the New International Version, are a couple verses. There's a number of verses, but I just listed three. But notice verses like Matthew 18, 11, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. We don't need that one. Acts 8, 37 doesn't, is not in the Bible, of those Bibles, I should say, and, and I hesitate, to, to be frank with you, I, I hesitate to call them Bibles. But Acts 8, 37, and Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Remember we were talking about that? Remember, you know, what, what does hinder me to be baptized? Baptized? Well, what do you believe? Well, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, that's good. Well, how do, how do we know what you're supposed to believe? Well, the Bible tells us, well, unless it's a different version, it doesn't have it in there. 1 John 5, 7, I believe one of the most important verses in the Bible, because if you really look at the uh, Jehovah Witness movement, they have removed this one for a reason, because Jesus Christ is not God to them. Notice, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. You say, well, how do they get away with that? They literally skip it. They just skip right through it. They just act like it's not there. They literally have the verse. They just go from verse 6 to verse 8. That's crazy, isn't it? Now listen, not every version of the Bible does that, but the NIV and the NASV do, and can I tell you that for years and years and years, those were the two standards of Bibles. Now there's another version. I'm trying to think what it's called, the NA, New American Standard, NAS, or which one is it? No. The ABC Bible, the S-U-P-E-R, Supercaloristic Bible. There's all kinds of them. You know, there's over, I think, 200 versions of the Bible. Over 200 versions. So it doesn't really matter. It's all said and done. It's either one of those, good luck deciding which one, or a King James Bible. That's really the reality of it. The ESV. Did you say the ESV? I, I, I was trying to root through. I kept thinking, what did I hear? What did I just hear? ESV. That was correct. And that's the big one now. It's a big one now. And yet they still use these ones as well, by the way. Many churches do. Absolutely do. Some verses in question. Okay, let's talk about some of the things that are a little bit different, uh, kind of that create concern. 
Mark chapter 3, verse 5 in the King James Bible. It says, when he had looked around about them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the, unto the man, stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as others, as the other. Now again, he looked around about them with anger. Jesus Christ is viewing them, and he's, he's viewing them with anger. Isn't that interesting? He looked round about them, about on them with anger. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. This is in the NIV. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is, an, uh, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of fire, uh, the fire of hell. Now, wait a second. Anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment? So Jesus is worthy of judgment now. And wait a second, you, you say, wait a second, that's because if you'd read the NIV, they don't say that he looked round about them with anger. Oh, yes, they do. It does say that. I looked it up today just to make sure that you wouldn't get me on that one. Again, the NIV passage suggests that Jesus is subject to or worthy of judgment. I'm telling you what, that's a problem if you ask me. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, the same exact verse we just read, the NIV, it says this in the King James Bible. It says, but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause. Oh, wow. Shall be in danger of the judgment. So the King James passage provides what's called an exception clause. You can be angry with a brother if there's a good cause. If there's a cause... But Jesus, and did Jesus have a good cause? I guarantee you, if Jesus was angry with them and looked upon them with anger, absolutely there was a cause, a good cause. Jesus wouldn't have done it otherwise. Can I tell you something? I don't want to hold a Bible in my hand that says that my Savior's worthy of judgment. There's a problem with that. I think consistency is probably the most important attribute in the Christian life. And I believe that Bibles need to be consistent also. Because I think that there's nobody more consistent than Jesus Christ. So this passage provides us an exception clause. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. That's the Jesus that we celebrate. That's the Jesus that we serve. A Jesus that is without sin, no guile found in his mouth. How in the world could he say what he said or look upon them with anger and then turn around and remove the without without a cause clause. Some thoughts. People say, no Bible's without error. Well, here's my thought. If your Bible has error, then your Savior has error. Well, I got a Bible, but it's not 100% accurate. Well, then you're saying it's not perfect, right? Absolutely not. I don't think any Bible's perfect. Well, wait a second. Is your Savior perfect? Well, without a doubt. Oh, well, let's test that theory. In John chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, and the Word was made flesh, in verse 14, and dwell among us. That's Jesus Christ. Can I tell you, the Word and Jesus Christ are the same. Jesus is the incarnate Word. And He's also the written Word. So if your Bible has error, then technically you are saying that your Savior does. And can I tell you, if he's not a perfect Savior, his blood meant nothing being shed at Calvary. Not a thing. Because my blood could be shed at Calvary. 
Yeah, but your blood isn't perfect. That's right, and neither is Jesus. If you believe you got a Bible with error, the Bible says that the Word of God and Jesus are the one and the same. Ah, you say, well, I don't see that there. Well, read it for yourself. You tell me what it means then. It does mean that. Again, we must be logical about Scripture. Scripture is not that complicated most of the time. The most complicated part of Scripture is obeying it. Verses concerning salvation are in question in, in different versions. In the King James, we read, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The one who believes has eternal life. Wait a second. This, this New International Version says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The one who believes has eternal life. The King James says, Who that believeth on me. So we remove on me, and when we do that, you can believe anything you want and have eternal life. Man, that sounds a lot like our culture today, doesn't it? You believe whatever you want, and we're all God's children, and everything's fine, and, you know, it's good to go. I believe. What do you believe? Well, I have my own belief. Me and God got something going here. You've heard people say things like that. We, got, we have an understanding. It doesn't matter what you have an understanding about. You better figure out what God's Word says. You better put your faith and trust and believe on him, Jesus Christ, or you're never going to get to heaven. You can't believe on any other. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, Acts 4.12. Think about Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. What an amazing passage it is. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And I don't know about you, but I believe the blood of Christ is pretty important. We don't preach enough on the blood of Christ, to be honest with you. In whom we have redemption, the New International Version, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.14, the New American Standard Bible, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins again. Again, we've removed through his blood. That's dangerous. You start removing the blood of Jesus Christ, you remove the possibility of salvation and redemption. Because there is no salvation without the blood. Without the blood, there's no remission of sin. Matthew 7, 14, in the King James, it says, Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Narrow is the way. Notice what it says in the New King James Bible, or version. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way, which leads to life, and there are few who find it. I don't know about you, but something that's narrow doesn't necessarily mean it's difficult. I don't know. There was a track written by a fellow by the name of Porter. I can't remember his first name. But he wrote a track called uh, A Simple Plan of Salvation years ago. He had it all wrong then. Because according to the New King James Bible, it's difficult. It's not simple. It's not easy at all, for sure. It's difficult to find that way. You better work hard or you'll never find it. You'll never be there. It's not difficult. It's narrow, sure. But God never said it was difficult. It's just narrow. You have to believe the way he says to believe, not any way you want. Concerning security now. We've seen the Savior. We've seen salvation in question in some of these versions. We also note even eternal security or 
everlasting life. Notice what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Praise God we're saved, amen? Hold on, New International Version. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Can you imagine? Do you understand what the difference is between being saved and are saved? Big difference, huh? I'm glad I'm not being saved. I'm glad I'm already saved. The King James, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The New International Version says, God made him, to be, uh, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Become. Again, a process. There's this, this mental picture of a process taking place here. We, we know that God's righteousness is applied immediately to us. We're not becoming righteous through our efforts, but righteous in Christ. And that's so important. It says, for we are unto God, chapter 2, verse 15 of 2 Corinthians, a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. Again, for we are God, the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Again, this process, salvation is reduced to a process in the New International Version. It's reduced to a process in many of the versions. And, and, and I'm telling you, we, we need to be very clear that God's salvation is not a process. <laughs> And we are saved eternally. So why we use the King James Bible? Because of the inspiration and preservation of Scripture. We use it because of these manuscript lines. As we look back and we continue to do research, we recognize that there's basically two lines. One out of Antioch of Syria, in a place where they were first called Christians, where the Apostle Paul left and ultimately took the word of God throughout Europe. And we also see this line of manuscripts out of Alexandria, Egypt, that also made their way up into Rome. and was virtually made popular through the Roman Catholic Church. And then now constitutes and comprises every single version other than the King James Bible. There are certain verses that are omitted. We shared three. I think there's easily 11, 12 of them that are literally just missing out of many of the versions. Just not even there. And then there are versions in question or verses in question. We talked about the fact that the Savior's in question. Verses concerning the Savior. Verses concerning salvation are in question. Verses concerning security are in question. And so... Tonight, again, I know that this is not comprehensive. I understand that. You may have other questions. But I do think it begins to lay a foundation for why we believe what we do. People don't have to always agree with you, nor do they have to agree with me. But I do believe they need an explanation as to why we believe what we believe. And I believe this sets a really basic but very solid foundation for why we believe what we do. Now, I'll tell you this. There are good men and women on both sides of this battle. I'm not going to sit and tell you that everybody that you ever heard of or read or know that used another Bible was out of hell. 
Because that's the, that's the attitude that people give us Baptists, that we think everybody else goes to hell that doesn't use a King James Bible. That's not a, at all what we believe here. I'm not going to debate with you whether this is the pure word of God and only people can be saved through the pure word of God. I'm not going to debate it. I'll tell you right now, you give me a Catholic Bible, I'll show somebody how to get saved out of it. I'm not going to argue that. But I'm going to tell you what, for English-speaking people, I have no question in my mind that the King James Bible is for us. And can I tell you, if you go to a church that doesn't believe in a King James Bible, I, I encourage you to come to one that does. Because I believe that you're missing out on some things. You say, oh, I know, I know. I'm just telling you what I believe, what I think is true, and what I believe scripturally is given to us. And again, you are welcome to your opinion. I'm not going to argue with you about it. I'm not going to get angry about it. I just believe what I believe. And in our church, since I'm the pastor, that's what we do here. We do not, I don't study out of any other version. I don't look at another version. I don't need another version. I got the Holy Spirit to guide me through this thing. It's not too complicated or too tough to understand. I don't need something to dumb it down so that I can figure it out in my humanity. I've got a supernatural spirit that guides me and directs me and gives me wisdom. And by the way, he'll do the same for you, he says. And so that's why we do what we do. I, I don't want to teach her ever, ever, ever using another version. I don't want you ever even to allude to another verse out of the Bible. Well, it says it in some other Bibles like, don't, don't do that, please. If you are compelled to do that, don't. And if you can't help it, come see me because we'll dismiss you out of the teaching position. I don't want this book, only the King James Bible, to be shared in this church. Because in my opinion, it is the only Bible. Okay. You say, well, that's pretty uh, intolerant. You're right. Amen. You hit it. You hit the nail on the head. Amen. I believe there's still a book that God has preserved, and I believe for English speaking, it's in this King James Bible. And so you know what? I want to be as true to it as I can be. And you say, when you get to heaven, you'll see you are wrong. Well, when I get to heaven, it won't matter a whole lot, but I can tell you this much. I'd rather believe a book 100% than to go through my life believing one's only 99% correct. Because then i got to always wonder which, one is, which part of it isn't. I don't understand how people can say, I believe in a Bible that's 97% accurate. Well, which 3% isn't? Is it the part where you get saved? I want to know I'm going to heaven. I want to settle it. And honestly, if you say, well, you're just ignorant. But you're so simple-minded, you can't figure it out. Good, I'm glad. I hope I never figure it out. I went through a time in my life years and years ago where I studied that thing and said, Lord, I will, I will read whatever Bible you want me to read. I'll study whatever Bible you want me to study. I'll, do, I'll, I'll speak in tongues if you want me to speak in tongues. I want all of the Holy Ghost. I want all of the Word of God. I want it all. And I just said, you know what? You're going to have to open up some doors. And man, I'll tell you what, it was a confusing study because I watched, as I said, good men that I thought were good men of God using other Bibles, and they still, some of them do, and I do believe there are people getting saved in those churches if they're preaching the gospel and giving opportunity to be saved, by the way, and I think in many of them, they're preaching the gospel, but they don't give many opportunities to be saved. Getting rid of our altar calls today, we're throwing that all out the window. We're just hoping that somehow the Holy Spirit draws everybody. Let me tell you, he uses you and he uses me. You You don't have to agree with that, but I think if you read through the scriptures, you'll find that he used Paul the apostle to do it. Things are still the same. So we use a King James Bible, okay? And uh, unapologetically, I use a King James, and I unapologetically as a church, we use the King James. And 
I hope this has been helpful to you. you. You don't have to agree, but I hope that it's helped you to understand why we do what we do. Because I think it's important that we are all on the same sheet of music. How can two walk together except they be agreed? They're ultimately, if we're not careful, we can, be get, we can get divided on things. And this is one of those issues the devil will try to divide Christianity. It's divided Christianity. He's divided Christianity on a couple of occasions through history with this one. And he'll do it inside a church as well. You get another pastor one day. Do not hire a pastor that doesn't emphatically believe the King James. Don't hire a pastor that says, well, from time to time, I'll study out of one. I promise you he's going to introduce another version in the next five years, if not two years, if not sooner. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's preserved. Let's go ahead and keep living it. Let's keep reading it, studying it and applying it to our lives. Father, we thank you for this time we've had together. Again, Lord, it's uh, just a, a basic teaching time, really. We just ask that you'd use it and encourage the brethren. I know, I know folks in the church already believe this stuff. I know that, but it does us good to be reminded again. And Lord, if there was somebody that was maybe had some questions, I hope it's helped a little bit. I hope it's encouraged them or maybe opened up some, uh, some I don't know, thought into this process and maybe brought some clarity to their mind as to why and what we do. And Lord, I think it's important that people understand it, uh, that they understand why we do what we do. And Lord, I know that, Father, the lost doesn't, they don't need to know these things, but we who are saved that are gathered here tonight, it's important that we understand why we stand where we do. Now, Father, use us, Father, to take this word. Let us drink it in. Let us really receive it and allow it to impact our lives and our homes, our families. And Lord, may we ultimately take it to a world that's lost and in need. Well, thank you, Father, for all you do. Thank you for this blessed book. Thank you for the word of God and what it means to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye.